From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. If you are going to take a stand, make sure it's a righteous stand uh, because we do have an obligation, because we, we have people listening and we have that soapbox or whatever you want to call it. And uh, it should be used wisely, you know, as opposed to our former malignant orangutan. That's Stephen Van Zant, also known as Little Stephen. He's a legendary musician and also an actor who has lived many lives. First as Bruce Springsteen's sidekick in the E Street Band, and later as mobster Silvio Dante on the hit HBO show, The Sopranos. He's out with a new memoir. It's called Unrequited Infatuations, Odyssey of a Rock and Roll Consigliere. This interview was personal for me. As a young boy in New Jersey, I grew up on Little Stephen and the E Street Band, but our conversation today was about a lot more than just music. We talked about the seeds of the anti-apartheid movement in the United States, whether musicians have a moral obligation to speak out about politics, and what it means to be a band guy instead of a solo guy, a consigliere instead of a frontman. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS, we are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen. Before I get to your questions, I want to remind you all that we have a super exciting event tonight, Thursday, October 21st. Now and then hosts Heather Cox Richardson and Joanne Freeman will be joined by another wonderful historian, Emory Professor of African-American Studies, Carol Anderson, for a special live taping of their podcast. Curtains open at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. Get a link to join on Zoom at cafe.com slash live. Hope to see you there. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in an email from Amir, who writes, I read that Trump sat down for deposition Monday over an incident with a security guard at Trump Tower. Can you explain what's going on? Could Trump be held personally liable? So thanks for the question. You know, amid all this conversation and debate, uh, which is natural and legitimate, over the panel examining the origins of the 1-6 insurrection, a little bit more quietly, Donald Trump actually did sit for deposition in a civil case, although he tried for a long time to get out of it. The case arises from an incident, as you point out, with Trump security at Trump Tower back in 2015 before he was the president. The case has taken a long while to get anywhere, in part 
because Trump has argued through his lawyers that he was too busy to sit for a deposition while he was commander in chief. The lawsuit involves a claim by a group of protesters who allege that they were attacked by Trump organization guards at a rally outside of Trump Tower back in September of 2015. They have brought the suit against the Trump organization, the security guards, and the Trump campaign. And so ask your question about whether Trump can be held personally liable. That remains to be seen. It depends on what he admits. It depends on whether or not he was the person who directed them to engage in that conduct. I'm not sure they'll ever be able to prove that. I don't even really have a view on the merits of the claim at all, but I do think it's interesting to think about what's going to happen to Trump in the coming years. There are a whole bunch of other lawsuits now that Donald Trump is no longer president that he will likely have to be deposed in. And he has a history of being involved in litigation, both as a plaintiff and as a defendant. And some of that history is interesting. So reporters asked the plaintiff's lawyer in the current case about what Trump was like. And I thought that, I thought the lawyer gave an interesting answer. He said, quote, you all have seen the president for many years on the news, almost every night for five or six years now. The president was exactly as you would expect him to be. <laughs> and he said, Trump, quote, conducted himself in a manner you would expect Mr. Trump to conduct himself, end quote. So what, what does that mean? And if you go back and look at the history, there are two things that I find notable about how Donald Trump testifies. Well, I guess three things. One is there are certain kinds of occasions where he will just refuse to testify and, and gets out of it. That was notable in the Mueller investigation, of course. The other thing is he is his usual obnoxious self. There's a New York Times article from July 28th, 2015, that describes the way that Donald Trump tends to conduct himself in depositions. And one of those ways is to be snarky and harassing and obnoxious. As that article describes, on one occasion, he called the lawyer who was questioning him disgusting and also other names. But the third thing that's notable to me and not often commented on is that if you get Donald Trump under oath in a deposition in a legal proceeding, he does make concessions. I'm not saying he always tells the full truth, but he appreciates, at least historically, the gravity of his predicament, and he will walk things back. Here's some examples from that New York Times article. On one occasion, a lawyer asked him, have you ever exaggerated in statements about your properties? Trump replies, I think everyone does. He's asked, does that mean that sometimes you'll inflate the value of your properties in your statements? Trump answers, not beyond reason. On another occasion, he was asked, did your debts ever reach $9 billion in the 1990s, as he said in two of his books to dramatize his eventual financial comeback? What does Trump say? That is a mistake, and I don't know how it got there. So in any event, I don't know what will happen with this case, but it will be interesting to see Trump sitting in that seat, being asked questions by lawyers in multiple cases going forward. This question comes in an email from Jacob, who writes, the January 6th committee voted to recommend a criminal contempt of Congress charge against Bannon. That's a big deal. Has this ever happened before? Well, the answer, Jacob, is yes, it's happened before. As Joyce Vance and I discussed on the Insider podcast this week, we recounted some of the history. Uh, it's happened actually with greater frequency in recent times, and often it's a symbolic vote to hold someone, often even, sometimes it's even a cabinet official, in contempt of Congress. Of course, what happened this week was just a vote by the committee. That then is followed by a vote by the entire House of Representatives. And that may have happened by the time you listen to my words in this podcast. And every expectation is that a majority of members of the House will sustain the vote 
that we saw in the committee that was unanimous. The bigger question, though, is whether the Justice Department, namely the U.S. Attorney in D.C., will, having received the recommendation for criminal contempt of Congress, the referral, will that person choose to indict the witness, in this case, Steve Bannon? And that is exceedingly rare. And it's rare for a number of reasons. Uh, Number one, often it's the case, as it was with Bill Barr and with Eric Holder, the U.S. Attorney in D.C. is not about to indict that person's boss on the recommendation of Congress, particularly given the circumstances in which the criminal contempt was recommended. Another reason is that the Department of Justice has a generalized policy of not indicting someone if they bring a reasonable or plausible argument that the reason that they cannot testify or provide documents is because of executive privilege. There are other reasons as well. The last time someone was indicted through this process was in 1983. It was an EPA official, Rita Lavelle, and the full House vote to cite Lavelle for contempt of Congress was actually unanimous, 413 to zero. And eight days later, the U.S. Attorney's Office indicted Rita Lavelle. That's the last time it happened. And you know what happened in that case? She was acquitted by the jury. That's not to say Steve Bannon won't be convicted. That's not to say that this is a stronger case, because I think it is. I think he has no argument, as I've been saying for a few weeks now, to argue executive privilege. But we'll have to wait and see what the Department of Justice does. This question comes in a tweet from at Sizzling Sports, Sizzling spelled with a C, (laughs) who wants to know, what is your favorite chain steakhouse? Now, that's an interesting question. Why you would want to know my favorite chain steakhouse? But I'll, I'll answer, I guess, depends on when in my life you were asking me that question. When I was a kid, there was a chain steakhouse. I don't know if it still exists, but it was a favorite of the family, special occasions. We would go to the Sizzler, all-you-can-eat salad bar. And that's where my family liked to go. And then a few years after that, we used to go to another steakhouse, chain steakhouse. I don't know if it still exists, called Bonanza, in part because I had an uncle who was the manager there. I'll tell you a chain steakhouse I don't like, no offense, and we will now lose them as an advertiser on Stay Tuned with Preet. But the Outback, I went there once. Got to tell you, didn't love it. Also don't like their commercials. Now, I don't know what qualifies as a chain steakhouse. If the definition is there's more than one of them, then my favorite chain steakhouse at the moment would be Wolfgang's. There's a number of those on the island of Manhattan. Wolfgang's was started by the former head waiter at Peter Luger's, which is a legendary steakhouse in Brooklyn, which you may know. If you would ask me what my favorite steakhouse is, period, as a lot of people who know me appreciate, my favorite steakhouse is Sparks on 46th Street in Manhattan, the place where Gambino boss Paul Castellano got whacked many years ago. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. If there's one thing that all former U.S. attorneys for the Southern District of New York have in common, it's that we love a good sauce. It's even rumored, although I can't fact check this, that Ogden Hoffman, who served in the position from 1841 to 1845, never ate a meal dry. Now you're probably asking, what does sauce have to do with my cell phone bill? It's because Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell all of their wireless services online. 
They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. For a limited time, their premium wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. To get the new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash preet. That's mintmobile.com slash preet. Cut your wireless bill to $15 a month at mintmobile.com slash preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. My guest this week is Stevie Van Zandt. He's a rock and roll legend who came to fame as the guitarist in Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band. He also led his own band, Little Steven and the Disciples of Soul. His life has taken many twists and turns. Starting in the 90s, he found success as a first-time actor, most notably on HBO's The Sopranos, where he played Silvio Dante, the loyal consigliere to mob boss Tony Soprano. Stevie Van Zandt, welcome to the show. It's a real privilege and honor to have you. Oh, my pleasure, Preet. Good to be with you. I got to say, I'm a, I'm a little bit nervous. I'm not usually nervous <laughs> for these things because to, to me, and this will come as no surprise to my listeners, you you are a hero and a legend. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do my best. <laughs> oh, Members man. of Congress are a little easier for me <laughs> than people of your, than people of your higher stature. <laughs> uh, that's funny. We're gonna keep that in the final episode. So congratulations <laughs> on the book. Thank you. Unrequited infatuations, which is a great title. You know, what's interesting to me and what I loved about the book is I feel like I just had a 15-hour conversation with you. Oh, nice. Because it really feels like you're just, you're, just, you're just talking. And I think you've said in other interviews that that was how you conceived of doing the book. You're just sort of talking. Um, the problem is, it's just you talking. I couldn't get a word in edgewise. So I'm, glad, <laughs> I'm glad I can ask you some follow-up questions now because I had, I had a few. So we have a lot of ground to cover because you've lived one of the most interesting, remarkable lives I think of anyone um, that I can think of. First thing that struck me in your background is you said you, you didn't like being a kid. Who doesn't like being a kid? Well, I like it now. <laughs> <laughs> now that you can enjoy childhood, yeah, you like it. you know, I mean, I ended up making a living doing it. But, uh, yeah, I, I hated being a kid. I just wanted to, like, get up, you know, get, get, grow up and get on with it, you know? I, I just felt like uh, the adults had all these secrets and, and, uh, and were controlling things. And I wanted, to, I wanted to be in control of my own destiny, I guess, you know? And have you been? Have you found that you have been? Uh, no, but uh, I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you get there eventually. It's been a couple, three years, right? Yeah, it's, uh, I think that's what attracted me to religion in, in the early days, uh, which, you know, ended up getting transferred to the uh, rock and roll world. But basically, I, I thought, you know, that's where the secrets are. You know, that's where the answers are. Yeah, and then you grow up and you find out that adults have more questions than the kids even. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you find out that that's, you know, the answers. Uh, well, you, you know, I, I did along the way to find out, you know, who's pulling the strings. And, and that was part of my journey, you know, to, just to find out who, who, is, who is in control of our own destiny and why and, and how do we deal with that and, and, and all those kind of questions. I mean, that was, 
Right. I mean, you also learn how much luck is involved, right? Oh yeah, there's 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 luck involved, and and and, and destiny, and and bizarre circumstance, and uh, my my life. Very little of my life has been planned. Very little. Yeah. No, that's true. And you had the for- good fortune of being able to make certain decisions, some of which you're very honest about in the book that you maybe thought you shouldn't have made, and then you can undo some of them. You can't always walk back through the door, but you managed to do that with E Street Band, for example. Well, that, that was the most interesting one because that's the one that I've carried my whole life, feeling that was the biggest mistake of my life. But then when you examine it a little bit closer, you realize everything I've accomplished, literally everything, happened after I left the E Street Band. Just, just to remind folks who may, may not have read the book and aren't familiar or forgotten because it's been a long time, you left the E Street Band in 1980 what? Well, technically uh, 82, but uh, most people consider it 84 because that's when they started the tour of Born in the USA. I, I, produced, I produced most of Born in the USA and then, and then left around 82. And then, you got, and then you, got, you got to go back after doing all these other great things. Yeah, just a little bit of closure, you know, because I left under rather emotional circumstances and um, always felt that I should go back. But, but you know, going back and reliving it, and, and, you know, I think you really have to transport yourself back w- when you're doing a book like this. It was, it was interesting to me. And I, and I think I learned, I learned a lot uh, about my decision-making process and why I did what I did. And, uh, and when you really measure it, it turns out that it probably was uh, for the best for everybody. So I want to talk about the E Street Band in a little bit. But first, I want to talk about something that, that I feel is a bit of philosophy in your book. And I wonder if you meant it just about music or about life in a larger sense. And you say, and for me, I found this very profound. There are two kinds of people in the world, my friend. I'm glad you call me your friend in the book. <laughs> there are two kinds of people in the world, my friend, solo guys and band guys. Did you mean that in some larger sense than just me? Yeah, I, I mean almost everything in a larger sense in this book. I mean, I, I did not intend for it to be a music book for music people exclusively. Um, you know, and there's there's plenty of that, you know. I, I found it to be a good book for lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> that I did not intend. <laughs> I'm actually not. I'm actually not kidding. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot of wisdom in here, and I'll, we can talk about some of it. So, so what? So, what's the difference between a solo guy and a band guy? Well, I, I think it's you know obviously in, in regards to show business, it's it's the obvious. You know, uh, the solo guy. It's all about me, me, me. You know, the one guy in the spotlight, and the audience either digs him or they don't. A band is a completely different communication. It is communicating friendship and family and, you know, the team, the posse, the gang, and and ultimately it communicates community. And that's what interested me. You know, I never have been interested. uh, Well, as a kid, I wasn't interested in show business at all. And uh, and certainly not solo artists. And uh, it was, it was the, it was the discovery and, you know, revelation of a band, which happened February 9th, 1964. Uh, that that really you know made me want to do it. You know, made me want to be a part of it. For the young for the young people, could you remind them which that which band that was? Yeah, uh, it was uh, on a variety show that the entire family would watch every Sunday night called Ed Sullivan, and uh, he had something for all the different age groups. You know, puppets like Topo Gigio for the kids, and uh, opera for the old folks, and something for the teenagers. And that night, uh, it was the Beatles uh, for the teenagers. Ladies and gentlemen. The Beatles! And uh, what an extraordinary, uh, you know, 
epiphany that was. I mean, just to because because there, there weren't that many bands in America at the time. Uh, you you just didn't you didn't see bands. If you went to your high school dance, it was an instrumental band, and uh, you didn't see four or five guys singing and playing. It was just not a thing. As you point out, all of them could have been the lead. Well, yeah, in the, in the Beatles' case, yeah, you had you know all of them lead, lead singers. They were just extraordinarily sophisticated uh, and, and highly evolved. Uh, they, they started in 57 and were gone by 69. So this is like halfway through the career. And, and um, that's why I always connect this to the Rolling Stones coming four months later, because uh, the Beatles were just perfect. I mean, they, they're, 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 the harmony was amazing. The hair, the clothes, everything about them. And so you looked at them, and and you and and they certainly presented a, an entirely new option in the world, which I desperately needed. But then four months later, uh, the Rolling Stones come, and um, they're kind of wearing casual clothes, and you know the hair is not perfect, except for Brian Jones, and there's no harmony <laughs> really. You know they're not they're not really you know they're, they're, they're making it look easier than it was. They really were the first punk band. And uh, so you look at that and you, and you think to the Beatles, well, I love that, but I don't think I can do it. Rolling Stones, I don't know. I could give that a shot, you know. So uh, as I like to put it, the Beatles revealed a new world to us and the Rolling Stones invited us in. What's interesting about the point you make in the book, you, know, you basically say the big bang of rock and roll was the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show. And then you, you allow this concession. You say, some would argue Elvis's appearance, Elvis Presley's appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show was really the big bang of rock and roll, but it wasn't mine. And the reason I found that interesting is, as you may know, when your friend Bruce Springsteen opens up his Broadway show, it's basically an homage to Elvis and how mm. Elvis was the thunderclap for him and the gyrating and the yeah. guitar playing. So does that make Bruce a solo guy versus a band guy? Well, it's 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 interesting since he's only one year older than me you know it, it is actually quite interesting and we both talked about this um well it makes him both you know it makes him both but but um he certainly is capable of, of being the solo guy and, and has and has become that uh, uh in in whenever he feels like it uh the broadway show uh, being the greatest example um you know so i, I you know if, if I, it, it was hard. It's hard to say what what percentage is, you know. But it's certainly fifty fifty. He he is certainly both. There's a line in Pulp Fiction, I think. There's only two kinds of people in the world: Beatles people and Elvis people. Now, Beatles people can like Elvis, and Elvis people can like Beatles, but nobody likes them both equally. Somewhere you have to make a choice, and that choice tells you who you are. So fair to say, apart from the Big Bang moment. You're more Beatles than Elvis. Oh, it's not. It's not a close call for me. I, I I didn't even like Elvis. You didn't? No, not at all. I mean, I, I, we're gonna have to edit I, that I, out of the show. <laughs> I went back. I went back, of course, and studied the fifties, and and uh, and of course, uh, I, I completely understand his extraordinary place in history. And I and I and I enjoy his son his son singles mostly, you know, and, and a few others. You know, I, I enjoy you know, I don't know. I might enjoy like a dozen of of his songs or so of his records, but uh, he never meant a thing to me. Nothing. Does it make is is part of the reason that he wasn't doing the writing? Do you have uh, a lesson? No, of I wasn't of, that con. Yeah. No, I wasn't that conscious of that. No, 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 I didn't know. I didn't know who was writing what. I mean, I mean, I, I thought the Beatles were writing everything they did. Uh, for all I knew, I mean, I never heard of Chuck Berry. I never heard of Bo Diddley. I never heard of Little uh, Little Richard. I never heard of these people. I never heard of Muddy Waters. You know, it was the British invasion that introduced me to all of our American music. 
I never heard of it. You know, I never heard of Arthur Alexander or Larry Williams. And, you know, these were these were all completely. What, where would I have heard them? You know, so the, the British invasion was extraordinarily important to our education about our own music in America. Yeah, you say something else that's kind of a variation on the theme of being a band guy, and that is that you always like to be the guy behind the guy, kind of like the consigliere. And as you taught me about your own book. <laughs> It's in the subtitle, Rock and Roll Consigliere. <laughs> yeah. why, why, why is that something that appeals to you? Well, it's not a matter of appealing. I, I think this is in your, your DNA. Uh, you know, it, it's not a, I don't think it's a choice, really. You know, I, I don't think we have that many choices in the world, actually. We think we do, but I don't, I don't, I don't think so. Um, I, I just think um, this comes from, you know, we could psychoanalyze it all day long, but I think it comes from a certain need that is, uh, happens early in life. And um, even though my mother got divorced when I was very young, which, which should be uh, one of those traumatic events uh, that causes that need, uh, it didn't happen with me because we moved in with my Italian grandparents and I was the first grandchild. So I was like divine, you know, I was like considered, you know, and, I, and there were still aunts and uncles in the house. So you know, it takes a village of goombas to raise a rock and roller. And, uh, and that was the case with me. You said yeah. that, not me. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, so I, I you know, I just, I'm just saying that I grew up just feeling very secure. And I, and I, and I think, I think people who are really natural front men and, and the guys who become the superstars and celebrities, I think they need that spotlight. I think they need, they need that, that, that audience, um, uh, to, to to complete them a little bit. I just never had that need. People will enjoy all the stories in which you're, you're pretty candid with folks, um, which is one of the reasons you got into, into fights on occasion. You know, I, I saw that you said elsewhere that you ended up writing more about Bruce than you intended or expected to. How come? Well, I didn't want to make any Bruce news whatsoever. I mean, that's why I... I consciously waited for his book to come out first uh, or else I would have just been besieged. And, um, you know, it's, he's an important part of my life. Um, and E street band is certainly an important part of my life, but, uh, uh, I got a lot other, a lot of other stuff that, that, uh, is equally important to me. And so I just, I didn't really intend to, um, you know, as I was going through, what to leave in and what to take out. I just felt I really needed to uh, explore some of those things um, with the relationship with Bruce that I hadn't ever analyzed before, which uh, turned out to be uh, revelatory, uh, especially in that Born to Run to Darkness on the Edge of Town period, when at the time, you know, I was just concerned with making great music. That's all I was interested in at the time. I had no idea what he was going through. I did not have the sophistication to understand identity or, you know, public identity or, or, or uh, any of that. Uh, you know, I didn't have the big picture in mind. And so looking back, as, I'm, as I was reliving it, I just analyzed it for the first time. And I found it to be fascinating, actually. And uh, so I ended up talking about a bit, a bit, a bit more than I intended. And, um, but that's why... The first thing I did when I finished the book, I sent the, I sent the book to Bruce and to Bob Dylan because uh, 
that's where the most intimate conversations were. And, and, uh, and, and that's the challenge of a book like this, because, you know, I, I know a little bit too much. So, you know, you, you, you get a little concerned, you know, about what you're revealing and what you shouldn't be revealing. And, uh, and, I, and I wanted to make sure that both Bruce and Bob were not, you know, going to be uh, blindsided by some journalist pointing something out. And I said, you know, anything, anything that bothers you, please tell me. I'll take it right out because, you know, it's not, not, it's not going to be a gossip book. And were there things like that? And did they take you up on it? Yeah. Well, no, ne- neither Bruce nor Bob uh, changed one single word. Not, not one word. No, they no. didn't. Yeah. All right. Can, can we talk about one anecdote, which is not the most serious issue in the world, but I had never heard it before. So I don't know if it's news or not. So at some point in the early 80s, you have a falling out with Bruce he calls you up and says, let's meet and get past this. And you reconcile. And then sometime later, as you would do throughout your lives, you would play each other some of your new music and get a reaction from the other. And so in your, in your book, you write that he played you a song called Dancing in the Dark that was going to be on the record. And then No Surrender, which he said would be an outtake for a B-side. Mm. And your reaction was, which by the way, I don't think is a crazy reaction. <laughs> in the moment, you said, man, I said, you got it backwards. <laughs> throw that dancing thing in the trash <laughs> and not only put No Surrender on the record, but open with it. In fact, make it the damn title, No Retreat, No Surrender. And then you keep, I'm going to just read at length from this because it's so great. You write, to me, Dancing in the Dark had the potential to destroy his long fought, his long fought for credibility. <laughs> you say, now he was going to release what could easily be interpreted as a disco song to blatantly try and get a hit. What were you thinking when you said that? What was the reaction? And were you incorrect? I was very clear about what I was thinking. I, that, you know, I said I, I was thinking exactly <laughs> what I said. And, um, and and fortunately, this is one of those times that I was very glad that he did not. <laughs> he did not take my advice. Uh, well, actually, it gets better. My favorite, <laughs> my favorite line in this passage, he not only put it on the album, but released it as the first single, and not only released it as the first single, but filmed a stupid video. <laughs> which, which I found that I found that to be just awesome. Well, so how did he get away with that? How how come he wasn't uh, well I drawn up as a as a disco I'm, hack? I'm telling you, it was a concern, and uh, I didn't realize how bulletproof he was at that point. You know, I, I think the the credibility was such. Is that what it was? You think he was yes, bulletproof? Yeah, no doubt about it. With that video, are you kidding me? He had to be bulletproof to, to, to survive that. <laughs> isn't, that. Isn't that the video that launched Courtney Cox's yeah, career? Yeah, yes. Uh, and almost ended his. <laughs> no, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So, you know, I didn't love that. So, so I was in high school. That song has grown on me. And that song in concert is really quite yeah, good. No, we kill it in concert. We, we really, it's a, it's a whole different thing in concert. When, when you play that in concert, do you, do, you, do you ever think to yourself, you know, I told Bruce to throw this in the No, track. no, I, I just decided that we're going to do a rock version <laughs> of it live. You You've know, come along. Yeah, yeah but, right. uh, but it was, it was, uh, it's a funny, it was just a funny moment. And uh, obviously, uh, I'm glad we, we <laughs> I'm glad uh, cooler heads prevailed. yeah it went on to sell what 20 million copies or something oh yeah it paid rent for a while and uh yeah but he did put no surrender on the record so that was you know half a victory anyway and that isn't that is an incredibly excellent song you say something you know reading this book in part caused me to relive 
my teenage years. I was, um, I grew up in Jersey. And I don't know if you know, I don't know if we've ever talked about this. My dad was a practicing pediatrician in Asbury Park for 50 no years. No kidding. So you're, you're from Middletown. I'm, I'm from Eatontown. My dad did his job and made ends meet by working in Asbury Holy Park. Holy man. Yeah. And you mentioned the Brooklyn Carteret. Yeah. You know, it's funny. In the 70s, you know, Asbury Park had been the scene of a lot of violence, but, you know, it's made a big comeback. And there are, there are great restaurants. The boardwalk is is hopping again. I don't know if you get back there much. No, I was there last night. We we, we did a big event. Big. Oh, yeah. Well, I guess you do. <laughs> I guess, I guess event, you do. Yeah. You know, you, you say something else that is fascinating to me about how the invention of the record player gave way to young kids being able to listen to rock and roll because they could go to their own rooms. And I had never really thought about it that way. It was the ability of of kids to finally at their own, you know, in the privacy of their own rooms could listen to this music that the adult folk condemned or didn't like or didn't understand. And, and I realized that I got my first little stereo when I was 12, it was 1980. And I got my first albums uh, around that time. There was this thing where young folks will think this is crazy, but you could apply to get like 12 albums for one penny. <laughs> and then you had to buy an album every month from Columbia Records or, you know, the Columbia Clearing. Yeah, I don't forgot what it, it was, was called. The early, it was the early streaming model. Yeah. And, and I, for, for two reasons. One, because I really love the music on what you call your favorite official album, The River. But also I got, it was a double album. And I think I only had to expend one slot for the double album. So that was also great. And I got to listen to that in my room. What, what makes that your favorite official album? Well, I mean, uh, subjectively, it was the first one I co-produced. But um, in the 70s, it was just the worst time to record. And, um, and so we had to find a, a way to, a way to a studio and an engineer that could, uh, you know, make it sound the way you walk into a room and a band is playing. That's what you want to hear in a recording studio. That's what I want to hear. I don't, want to, I don't want to hear the engineers tell me, don't worry, we're going to make it exciting in the mix. <laughs> right, you know, right. I want to hear it now. And finally, we achieved that on the river. So going into work every day on the river, that, that album could have lasted five years and we wouldn't have cared. It was just a, a pleasure every single day. What, what makes the E Street Band work? I think it helps that it's a benevolent dictatorship, you know, a benevolent monarchy, whatever. Um <laughs> uh, Democracy is a little bit tough, as as you may have noticed going on in Washington D.C. right now. But um, it's tough in rock and roll too. You know, it's, it, it it helps I think to have a leader that receives input and contributions, but um, ultimately makes the decisions. And you know, it also helps to handpick everybody according to not only their musical talent but also their personality. And the um, same thing, you know, same thing that made The Sopranos great. You know, David Chase handpicking everybody and, and, uh, and ultimately being the, the benevolent, you know, monarch, you know, king. So that's a good segue. Uh, you mentioned The Sopranos. And I was, I was going to, so when I said earlier, you've had an amazing varied career. This is one of the reasons why that is so. And, and I didn't realize this until I read your book that you were up for a part in The Sopranos when David Chase happened to see you be funny and interesting on a, on a TV show, and like a, an award show, I think mm. it was. And he wanted you to be Tony Soprano, the lead. Yeah. 
and you had never acted before. And so my, my opening question, not to take anything away from you, but actually to pay you a compliment is, there are all these examples. I was trying to think of it with, with folks on the team in the last couple of days, people who never acted ever, and they go right on the screen and they're excellent as, as you were and are. And they include people like, to my knowledge, had no prior acting experience. Lady Gaga, at one point, you know, Ice Cube, Whitney Houston did that movie with yeah. Kevin Costner. Is it the case that every gifted musical artist is a natural actor? You, you do say somewhere else in the book that every singer is also an actor. How yeah, it's true to an extent. Um, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't translate exactly uh, to the other art form, you know, but, but, um, but it is true whether a singer is conscious of it or not. Every singer is an actor acting out that script, which is that song, and selling the audience that it is basically uh, autobiographical when um, it not it, it isn't necessarily so. Uh, we, we just we just our, our art form is is perceived as the most autobiographical, and uh, and that doesn't make it you know true. But when it comes to you know translating that into the actual acting in a in a film or TV, it doesn't hurt, especially if you're if you're uh, if you're the one writing. I think it, it helps if you're also the writer and singer. You know, I think I think in the case of like a David Bowie, who I thought was a good actor, also. Um, um, but it's a little bit it's a, it's it's a different it's a different discipline. And one has to really adjust to mostly in the in the sense of just being completely out of control of your own destiny. Um, you know, we in music, we you sing a song and, and you go into the control room and you listen to it and you say, oh, well, maybe I can do a little better. And you go and do it again. In the acting world, you act. And if a director likes it, you see it six months later. You know, right, right. and uh, it's a little it takes a little getting used to because, uh, you know, you're always trying to improve the craft, but you only get a chance to improve every six months or so or once a year. So uh, it's a little tricky. So how come you didn't get so I know the story, but for to give people a preview, you didn't end up playing Tony Soprano. That job went to James Gandolfini. Yes, uh, wisely so. And um and at that point, David said, "You know, they won't let me cast you as the as the lead. It's a big, big, biggest uh, expense, you know, uh, biggest investment that HBO has ever made. Uh, so, what else, what other part do you want?" And I said, "Well, now that I think about it, uh, I really kind of feel guilty taking an actor's job. My wife is an actor, and, and I see what she goes through going to you know classes for years and off Broadway and off off Broadway. You know, I said it's kind of I feel kind of guilty." So he said, okay, in that case, I'll write you in a part that doesn't exist. So you're not taking anybody's job. And um, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I, I never thought about acting, but I, I did think about writing and, and maybe directing someday. So I had a treatment. Uh, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a script yet. It's a script now. But at the time, it was just a treatment about a, a guy named Silvio Dante that uh, uh, has a castle, an, an old-style Copacabana club. Uh, big bands and uh, the Catskills comics and uh, dancing girls. And uh, it kind of li lives in the past. You know, he kind of looks like a 50s You like that guy. idea of, of the Copacabana type club, didn't you? Oh, yeah. I love it. I still do. <laughs> I, I still want to do, do this as a show still. Um, oh, why don't you do it as a real thing? 
Well, uh, well, you see, that's the thing. <laughs> I, I, I would do both. That's exactly, that's exactly right. You, you can make it a reality show. Yeah. Well, okay. Yep. Let's get some investors and go. I'm ready. I'm in. I'm ready. I'm in. I got time. Uh, you, right. <laughs> you can. What part do you want? You want to be uh, Major D? What do you want to do? <laughs> I'm going to be the feds. <laughs> oh, okay, you'll have a, you'll have a table. I'm going to be the law. The feds will be no. You're going to have a table. Like all the five families will have a table. Police commissioner, <laughs> the feds. You know that would be. I think this is a real thing. I think you should talk to your people. I'll talk to my people. Yeah, all right. All right. We'll, we'll but did that. you end up? You, had, you I don't recall there being a big Coba Cabana club in The Sopranos. No, no, no. So we came back two days later. Said, "Now nah, we can't afford it. We're going to make it a strip club." <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> you know, there's another point at which I bonded with you. It's in the trivial, obscure passage where you you go to the to the reading with the executives. And you see James Gandolfini, I guess Jimmy Gandolfini, who was not well-known at the time, right? This is before, oh. I mean, he became well-known because of The Sopranos. And you mentioned a film in which uh, he played a sort of a, a, a smaller role that I watched, and like you, as you say in the book, has never gotten its due. It's a much underappreciated movie, True Romance, screenplay yeah. by Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, just a terrific movie that no one had ever seen. I don't know why. I, mean, I have a theory. You, you know, my theory is no yeah, terrible, what? terrible name for like a mob action thriller directed by Tony Scott. Oh, yeah, I guess so. Undermarketed, I guess. But um, yeah, people have seen it now. But back then, I mean, I, I was with a very big casting agent and I said, do you know who that is? And she said, no. Right. right. I, I, I'd seen him in that. I think I'd seen him in Get Shorty by then also. And maybe even the submarine movie with Denzel. Um yeah, no, you see, you see these movies later on cable and you realize, oh, these people were not an overnight success. You know, right. Much made but, but, of overnight success. They were working hard for years and years and years. But he stood out. I mean, you know, I, I remembered him. I remembered him very distinctly from True Romance. He was, you know, amazing in that. Well, there's that really harrowing scene with Patricia Arquette. Yeah. That is not for the weak. No, I mean, he is uh, as merciless, ruthless as it gets. Anyway, um, but there's many classic scenes in that movie. My goodness, you know. The, 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 uh, anyway, we'll, before we digress here, um, and, and so I said, I said, I said, you know, you know, you know who that is. She said, no. I said, I, I just saw him, and I'm telling you right now, he should play Tony Soprano. <laughs> he should, he should be the guy playing Tony Soprano. And I, I didn't realize how crazy you're betting against yourself. Well, I, you know, I'm just being honest, and, and, and I I didn't understand the acting world at that point, how competitive it is. It's very different than the music world, very different, you know. And they are they are life and death, you know, dog eat dog competitive in, in the acting world. It's it's very different, uh, you know. In music, you know, we we feel like there's there's room for everybody, you know. Uh, ultimately, I mean, you know, there's some might get into a little bit of a competition here and there, but it's, there's room for everybody. In acting, it's like you get the job or they, or they get the job. You know, it's very uh, different. And she looked at me like I had three heads, you know, like, what? What are you talking about? You know, you got the point. And uh, I said, oh, I'm just saying, you know. I, <laughs> and uh, so that's what happened. Yeah. And luckily he did get the part and all is well. And you got to be... Silvio, yeah. and the rest is history. Yeah. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Stevie Van Zandt after this. 
how involved were you in in the musical selection for the soundtrack of The Sopranos? Because really that was not at great. all. Thank you. Yeah, yeah they, 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 David Chase loved that part of the process more than anything. Uh, he would come to me only when he needed something new. You know, uh, when when she opened the club in Asbury, um, you know, occasionally he would need a band or you know a, a new song, and, and he would come to me then. But that was rare. Uh, mostly, he he loved doing it. I mean, that's his that's his favorite thing. So he he's uh, he's a very very musical guy, and and. I don't know if anybody saw his first movie, Not Fade Away, but that's what that's all about. He, he's uh, he was actually a member of a band as a kid, and that Not Fade Away is really really kind of autobiographical. Uh, it's a cool little movie. People should catch that. We'll see it. Here's another example. Spoiler alert for folks. There's that famous, obviously, final scene in the last episode of The Sopranos, the last episode of the last season, and one of the questions was, "What song?" Do you play for that? And you had you had some ideas. <laughs> and when you're told uh, what it's going to be, you write, after 10 years and seven seasons of the most amazing music ever used on a TV show, David wanted to use f***ing Journey. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you're very quick to say, nothing wrong with Journey, of course. They made terrific <laughs> records, had one of the best singers in rock, and were huge. Nice. That was a nice save. I'm sure your editors told you to put that in there. <laughs> Which is true. All true, you know. Now, were you wrong about that? Just like you were wrong about dancing in the dark? Oh, no, no, no. I was right about this. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, uh, just think of how amazing it would have been if loose ends came in, you know? uh, As you you said, Bruce is loose. That was a little too much on the money. I'm not going to ask you the question, though I want to, because I know you've been asked it a lot before. And it's not your favorite question. You know, what what really happened at the end of that show? <laughs> and, and I think you once answered it. I've seen how you, you've answered it kind of obnoxiously. And you said, yeah, the director yelled cut and we all went home. That's exactly how I answer it. That's how I, <laughs> that's how I answer it now. And I always will. Yeah. <laughs> Were you sad when the show ended? Um, was it time? Uh, yeah. I, yeah, I guess. I, I, I think so because I... I'd always fantasize about writing for it and, and maybe directing, directing, you know. So I was a little, a little, and that was the compromise I made when I rejoined the E Street Band because I really had to think about it for a minute because I knew if I if I rejoined the E Street Band, first of all, I was very fortunate that David Chase was a big enough fan that he allowed me to do both, you know, which was incredible. That I did ten years of Sopranos seven seasons in 10 years and three seasons uh, uh, in four years of Willie Hammer. And in those 14 years of TV, I was touring the entire time. And I, I, I only missed one month of one tour and one month of another tour. Uh, it, it literally two months in 14 years. So it was a remarkable. And I was lucky that David Chase allowed that. But I knew that I would be diluting, you know, I, I would not be in the show as much as I would have been. And I was, was probably uh, killing my chances of ever writing or directing. So I saved all that for Lily Hammer. And uh, I was able to... The successful show. Went, went three yeah, seasons. Yeah, able to do it all in Lily Hammer. But, but, uh, but it was a compromise at the time that I really seriously considered, you know. But I felt I needed the closure with, a, with the E Street. So we've talked about music. You've talked about acting. I want to talk about activism. And you became quite, the first thing that struck me was 
your political awakening came in the 80s and you managed to get through the 60s <laughs> without thinking about politics. How did, how did you manage that? Were you aware Were you aware of what was happening in the 60s, Stevie? Well, <laughs> there was a few things I heard, huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you were, you were busy more doing more. other stuff, which, which you also describe in the book, but this is a family show. <laughs> I was, I, I had a tunnel vision that was concrete. I, I mean, I just, uh, that's all I was interested in was, was, was rock and roll, you know? And, uh, uh, I managed to just ignore everything that was going on. I don't know how, cause it was, cause all over the place. And, uh, I described the scene, you know, when I got drafted and, uh, all of that. And, and, um, uh, you know, again, then the 70s was a whole nother thing. Then that became the whole <laughs> liberated 70s. Uh, but yeah, it wasn't until it wasn't until the River Tour in the 80s that uh, I, I suddenly, finally uh, became aware because the tunnel vision finally faded once we once we actually made it to the top. And, and that, that felt like the top. The River Tour, you know, you're selling out arenas. And that was a miracle. It was just was the impossible dream come true. And uh, and suddenly the tunnel fades and you're like, I wonder what I've been missing for the last 20 years. Yeah. One of my favorite passages in the book is when you describe what you believe to be sort of the origin of rock and roll uh, being political. And you talk about Bob Dylan and a song of his subterranean homesick blues. And you say these two sentences. Johnny's in the basement mixing up the medicine. I'm on the pavement thinking about the government. And you say that those are the two most important sentences in the history of rock. And then you go back to the second sentence. I'm on the pavement thinking about the government. And you write, what? Thinking about what? What the fuck does that mean? All we thought about was sex. <laughs> all we knew was love songs. That's all there was. That line is a politics meets pop shot heard around the world. And you call it the big bang of political consciousness in pop. Want to elaborate on that? That's just true. Um, it, it, you know, Bob single-handedly introduced ideas and themes and subject matter that was only happening in folk music and blues. There was just no such thing in the pop idiom, you know. Uh, which soon to become the rock idiom. Um, there was no such thing, N nothing, nothing even close. A and uh, for him to start suggesting you should be thinking about the government was <laughs> was like you know. Well, we know you weren't at the time. <laughs> that's for sure. I, yeah, I wouldn't listen to him for uh, seventeen years or so. Uh, I wouldn't pay. I would you know pay attention. But it was it was uh, it was the beginning of the art form, you know. At, at that point, Bob would start to bring in personal lyrics as well as political and social lyrics by by like a Rolling Stone, uh, which was uh, what a year later or maybe even the same year. You know, suddenly, suddenly. Uh, he and the Beatles and Stones and the Birds and the Who, you know, all start influencing each other. And and the whole art form is born and the whole pop idiom is elevated to the rock idiom. And, and, and suddenly uh, 
we have a whole new world, you know, and, and, and Bob really initiated that. Do you think that recording artists generally or rock and roll artists have some obligation to address politics and social conditions, or is that really up to any individual artist? I think it's up to every individual citizen. Um, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's obviously when it comes to the show business world, um, you know, it's up to you. I mean, the, the old showbiz uh, dictum, you know, the, you know, the, 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 uh, the conventional wisdom was always never discuss politics or religion. Yeah. And there was a reason. The obvious reason is, you know, if you do, you're eliminating part of your audience. But for those of us uh, who money isn't everything, um, you know, I think we have an obligation as citizens to do that. But I, I always, I always add to that: uh, do your homework first, you know, and, and uh, do 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 enough research. If you are going to take a stand, make sure it's a righteous stand, and uh, uh, because we do have an obligation, because we we have people listening. And we have that soapbox or whatever you want to call it. And uh, it should be used wisely, you know, as opposed to our former malignant orangutan, you know, who uh, <laughs> used the uh, soapbox of all time to do nothing but bad things. By the way, you know, I, I, I was so studious in reading your book. I also read the thank you notes. Mm-hmm. And this is, I think, my favorite thank you I've ever seen in the book. <laughs> and you thank all the people you would expect. <laughs> you say... I am compelled to thank the Trump cacistocracy, the most extraordinarily incompetent, malevolent, ignorant, and embarrassing government in history for providing the nine months of quarantine that allowed me to give birth to this unlikely fable. <laughs> Take your point. No quarantine, yeah, you, wouldn't have, you, wouldn't have had the, you wouldn't have had the patience to write the book? I, I honestly don't know if it ever would have happened, Preet. And I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding. I, I, don't, I can't imagine... Stopping long enough to focus on because it was it was work, man. It was uh, I was doing therapy sessions like three times a week with my editor, you know, just trying to sort it out because uh, it seems simple now that it's done, but it, it was a very complex. Yeah, There's a lot of raw stuff. Look, but look, it worked out because, as I said, it's like you're talking to the to the reader. It's like listening to you talk. Well, yeah. But I, but I wanted the balance. It was very important to me to have the balance of not just the narrative, uh, but but the history that I've lived through most of. I, I just only missed the first decade of rock and roll, and the crafts. You know, I wanted to make sure that the, the, you know my observations of all of these crafts were in there to hopefully be useful. I wanted the book to be useful more than anything. Well, it's also I'll I'll, I'll pay you a higher compliment than that. Not just useful but parts of it are inspiring. And we were talking about the ways in which you became awake politically not long after that. And I, I, hate, to, I hate to say this, I shouldn't admit this, but I, I forgot that this was you in the way that um, it came about. But when I was in high school, as I said, this is like a trip down memory lane, I remember becoming politically aware myself and learning about injustices around the world, including apartheid in South Africa. And there was a song that you wrote and produced called Sun City, which addressed the issue of apartheid. And it was sort of an ingenious step for, I think, a musician to take. Can you, can you remind people 
that back then in, I guess, 1984 or 85, that apartheid was the law of the day in South Africa. There was a, a worldwide boy, boycott led by the UN, but there were three important countries that were not mm -hmm. part of the boycott who believed instead to, that they wanted to engage in constructive engagement, the UK, Germany, and the United States of America. And there was this resort called Sun City. What happened? Well, I mean, and I know it's a little hard to believe, but it was not an issue in America. It just wasn't. Um, it, 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 it wasn't like a forgotten issue. It just was never an issue. Uh, a couple people would mention it from time to time, you know, Harry Belafonte or Randall Robinson, you know, uh, and, and they were trying to make it an issue, but it just, we just didn't, it didn't happen. And um, it was certainly big in Europe, and like in the UN, as you said. So I, it was on my list. I, I had started studying foreign policy uh, since World War II and, um, and, and being shocked to discover that we were not the heroes of the world and, and the heroes of democracy around the world. And uh, we're supporting a lot of bad guys, a lot of bad regimes. And South Africa was one of them, just one of the names on my list uh, as I started to do my, my research. And... Uh, I just couldn't find out much about it. It was one of those mysteries. You know, the New York Times and everybody else was saying that they're going through these reforms of the government. And uh, and I went down there with a completely open mind, hoping to see these reforms. And, and, uh, and it took me two trips down there to really get it. But when I got it, I, I got it big time. And I realized that these, uh, these are bad people. And uh, this government needs to come down. Uh, there's just no, there's no reforming. This, this is modern day slavery. It's horrible. And so I sat down and said, okay, how do you bring down the government? You know, uh, this is something I didn't learn in school. I didn't learn uh, from a rock and roll record, but I would use rock and roll to do it. And uh, the sports boycott was in place, you know, thanks to Arthur Ashe and, and others and uh, was very successful because the Afrikaner were just uh, completely megalomaniacal and, and, hated not being in the Olympics and all that. And I, I, and I knew uh, the home run would be the economic sanctions. But the trick was we had to raise the consciousness of America to the point where once that sanctions bill crossed Reagan's desk, we knew he would veto it. We had to have enough momentum to override a Reagan veto, which had never happened. And so we used the cultural boycott to connect the sports boycott with the economic boycott and bring attention to the subject. And, um, and uh, in a, a very rare case of a complete victory, uh, we, we actually did manage to raise the consciousness to the point where uh, we, the sanctions bill came across his desk. He vetoed it. And we overrode the veto with Republican votes right. just to show you how the Republican Party has changed a little bit in these Years, uh, Richard Luger, I remember standing up saying that this is, you know, tyranny and we're against tyranny. And, uh, and uh, Republicans voted to help black people in South Africa vote, as opposed to the modern Republican Party who are doing everything they can to keep American black people from voting. So things have yeah. changed a little bit in these past uh, 40, 45 years. But just so people understand that that awareness was raised by the creation of a song. I never knew that the name of the song was Sun City. I would remember the refrain, I ain't gonna play Sun City. Oh, right, right. Where you got 50 of the biggest recording artists in the world 
to basically say they're not going to place on City, even though at the time, South Africans were paying huge amounts of money to get big ticket artists from around the world to come play there. And, and I think, as you say in the book, you shut down that place overnight. Yeah, and, and let me just spend one, 60 more seconds. You know, I'm trying to do this in a soundbite, which is impossible. But that's but, what podcasts don't need soundbites. We're good. Yeah, let, let me just let me give you another 60 seconds here to explain the concept of the South Africans, and they and they were kind of following. Uh, they learned from our Indian reservations. Um, the concept was take the black people out of South Africa proper, if you will, and return them to their so-called tribal homelands. Now, uh, they were not very tribal in South Africa, as, as it happens, except for the Zulu. It's another story. But, you know, these are, these are tribal homelands that were in, you know, maybe hundreds of years earlier. They were not relevant. But, they, but their idea was return them to their tribal homelands, and they would do this by knocking the person's shack down, putting their few possessions on a truck and driving them out to this wasteland, okay? And the idea was get them all back into their homelands, declare those homelands as separate countries, then declare South Africa as a democracy, and then, and then bring the black people back into South Africa to work as immigrant labor. That was the concept, you know, which was brilliant and evil, South, the, the resort of Sun City was in one of these phony homelands called Baputuswana. And, there, and, there, and they sold it as a separate country. So everybody who came to play Sun City, they said, don't worry, you're not violating the boycott. You're playing a different country. And everybody who came and played Sun City was just endorsing that fantasy, you know. And so we wanted to, expo by exposing that phony homeland policy, we could also basically... Uh, advertise, you know, publicize what was going on in South Africa in general. So that was that was that was the thinking of ink in a place, Sun City, and it was very successful. And I, I, look, I remember it as an anthem mm. when I was in high school. Around the same time, it's different, but around the same time, there were lots of artists coming together in other causes too, including the famine in Ethiopia. We had We Are the World and Live. Yeah. It was. Do, do you think we need more protest songs, or do we have enough of that going on? Well, I, you know, at this point, uh, what are we all going to do? Uh, say, let's, you know, let's crucify a mansion. I mean, what's going to be the song? <laughs> you know, I mean. That know, might not be played uh, on, on, a, on, a, on a loop in lots of places. Well, you know, what's interesting about the backs note, you, you remind me again, because you go into a lot of detail about this, and it's worth reading, people should should realize if you're of a certain age, you know the song. And you say in the book, if you know Sun City, it's because of MTV. It didn't get radio play because people were yeah. too concerned about playing a, a political protest song like that. Um, and I had forgotten about that. And, and it was too black for white radio, too white for black radio, just to, just to show our own apartheid right, right here in America. You know, uh, and they said they would say that right, right to me. Yeah. We even went to Stevie Wonder's, you know, radio station and, and he had he had spoken up about South Africa a little bit at that point it's a good video I played I played it for my son last night at dinner is it Jonathan Demi who directed it well it was a bunch yeah yeah Jonathan Demi directed the the action uh, but Godly and cream who were the most famous video makers at the time did the edit 
uh, and, and they're the ones who put the, the rips in and the, uh, you know, they, they, they stylized it. Uh, and, and also Hart Perry, who had filmed all of the uh, sessions. And, and, we, and we're going to release an extended version of the Sun City documentary, which we won an award for. But it, there's, there's so much more we should put in because we did interviews with almost everybody and, and, and half of those guys are gone. So we're going, to, we're going to do an extended Sun City documentary one of these days. And that was all Hart Perry. So Hart Perry was doing the West Coast filming. Jonathan Demme did the New York City. And, and Godley and Cream uh, did, the, did the actual uh, edit. And it was amazing. Cause we, we really needed an amazing video to save the day. And, and, they, and they did it. Can we talk about something else you care about? And that's the arts in school. The, the reason you and I got to know each other a few years ago is because of the work you do with respect to a, an organization you set up called the Rock and Roll Forever Foundation and the Teach Rock curriculum. Interesting fact that you discuss in the book on education policy. It, it happens to be the case that with the No Child Left Behind Act and other acts of, of, of localities and also the federal government, that the easiest thing for the budget folks to, to slash is art and music. And, and you make the argument, and then you can make it better than, than I could, paraphrasing you, that it happens to be true that kids who take music classes do better in math and science. So can you tell folks a little bit about that work? Yeah, well, well you know, and, and the whole thing is based on a, a, a misinformation or misunderstanding that, that uh, somehow testing is learning, okay, which it's not. And that—that's the fallacy, you know. In all—in all of this, that's the bottom line, you know. Let's increase the testing on math and science and everything else. They suddenly became obsessed with testing, and in, in the end, you know, it, it's jive. It's—it's—it's it's, it's just you know a way of justifying one's budget, but it, it has nothing to do with learning. Nothing. A anyway, um, we. At the time, I, I went and I talked to Teddy Kennedy. I talked to Mitch McConnell. They said it was unintended consequence. And I said, okay, so why don't you fix it? They were like, no, we don't, we don't fix things in Washington. You know, we, we just blow them up. Uh, <laughs> so I came back to the teachers. I said, look, we're not going to put instruments in kids' hands for a while. But I got an even better idea, actually. Why don't we do music history instead? And this way we can reach all the students, not just musicians. And keep the arts in the DNA of the public education system, which I feel is extraordinarily important. And, and in fact, and the more I've done this, the more I'm convinced that someday the arts will transform the educational process, uh, not by being an extra class or an after-school class, but by actually integrating art into math into science, into technology, into engineering, you know, actually into the discipline itself. And, 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 uh, and I've seen it work. You know, we, we have 40,000 teachers registered. We have dozens of partner schools now using it. And I, I, I witnessed one from kindergarten to sixth grade, uh, every single grade level and every discipline using our curriculum. And, and it's just amazing. The enthusiasm from these kids and the teachers is, uh, is just extraordinary. And, and what happens is, you know, kids come to come to school with these gifts. They come with curiosity. They come with imagination. They come with uh, emotion, uh, instinct. 
uh, you know, and, and what do we do in school? We, 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 we crush it. We, we, we ignore it. We, uh, you know, we eliminate it and then stuff a bunch of facts down their throat, which they don't know how to use or, or have any use for. Uh, we, we, we have got to change the methodology. I mean, we can't keep saying, learn this now and someday you'll use it. Not with this generation. Yeah. You know, give them some reason to sit there and not find an answer in 20 seconds on their device. You know, you got to give them something they can use now, not, not tomorrow. Now, they're a now generation, you know, and, uh, and, and we, we just start teaching in the present tense. And, and, and so we, we do that with our curriculum. We just simply... We, we go to them instead of, you know, dragging them to us. Uh, you know, we use the arts a, as a way of, of stimulating them and, and, and making them feel like they're on common ground because in the end, it's the arts that, that teach kids how to think. And that's what's important, teaching kids how to think, not what to think, you know. And, and, and so we go to them very simply. We say, who's your favorite artist? You know, and they'll say uh, Beyonce. And we say, well, she comes from a lady named Aretha Franklin. And uh, Richard Franklin comes from Detroit. We're talking about Detroit. She comes from the from a gospel church. We're talking about that. It comes from civil rights uh, movement. We talk about that. And they and they and they're wrapped. They're they're, they're, they're completely, uh, you know, completely giving you their attention right. because you're, you're making their, the information interesting in their world and accessible. Yes, it, and relatable. And you're in their world. You know, yeah. they're you're, they're learning about something that they're already interested in. And they want to learn about things they're interested in. You know, as long as they feel that there's a reason to do it, they're going to do it. So we're starting to transform the whole system, I think. And if, I, if we can get enough dissemination, you know, we, we can really get this thing out there. I think it's going to change, change the entire education system. I really, I really do. Stevie Van Zandt, congratulations on the book, Unrequited Infatuations. It was really tremendous. And I'll say again, for me personally, it's been a real treat and honor to spend all this time with you and thank you for your music thank you for your uh, other artistic output and thank you for your service to our country oh, thank you Preet always great talking to you my conversation with Stevie Van Zandt continues for members of the Cafe Insider community to try out the membership free for two weeks head to cafe.com slash insider again that's cafe.com slash Insider. Before we end the show, I want to highlight an initiative Stevie spoke about earlier. You heard about his passion for teaching art and music to young people and how important it is for them to find something in their schools and curricula that they can connect to. The organization we talked about, the Rock and Roll Forever Foundation, is really quite something. Stevie launched it in 2013 along with Bono, Jackson Brown, Martin Scorsese, and Bruce Springsteen. Their goal has been to incorporate popular music into school curricula to create interdisciplinary, culturally relevant lessons for students that keep them engaged, interested, and passionate about what they learn. Anyone can access their lesson plans, which range from teaching indigenous Colombian history to the science behind the way we hear sounds. The Foundation's online curriculum is called Teach Rock, which you heard Stevie and me talk about. And it has only grown in popularity during the pandemic, when students around the country have lost access to traditional arts education. The governor of Connecticut, Ned Lamont, recently announced the state will be incorporating the Teach Rock curriculum in Connecticut classrooms. 
It's an incredible mission and project, one that I support, and one I hope many more students have an opportunity to learn from. If you want to get involved or support the Rock and Roll Forever mission, head to teachrock.org. There's also a link in this week's show notes at cafe.com. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. And a special thanks again to my guest, Stevie Van Zandt. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tatashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. And the CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, Chelsea Simmons, and Namita Shah. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.